And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I got a knock on the door a little while after we opened as a program. This was way back in the day. And I opened the door and there was a, a person from the state of Colorado there. And they had for me a notice to tell me to stop operating a child care. And I said to them, I'm not operating a child care. I'm operating a sober home. And they said, it's the same thing. You have to have a license. <laughs> I had been told that you didn't. And the first thing I did was invite the person inside and let them see the program we were running. And so I had about four boys at that time. They were all downstairs doing school. We showed them our daily schedule. We introduced them to the therapist that we had on staff. And in having a conversation with this representative from the state, they realized that we had a very legitimate program. We just weren't licensed. And we realized that we need to be licensed with the state of Colorado. Much to my pleasant surprise, the state of Colorado then sent three people to help us get licensure. And they supported us in creating policies. They supported us in creating our rules. They supported us in creating our program. And they walked us through the process. And, and I say pleasantly surprised because they could have said, we don't care how good you are. Stop doing what you're doing. They interviewed the kids. The kids loved the program. They interviewed the staff that we had. The staff was really into it. So they said, we got to keep Fire Mountain going. Now, that's how my relationship with the state began. And it has continued to be a really positive relationship. But here Here's the reason for today's podcast. What a lot of parents, teachers, and clinicians may or may not realize when you come to work at a treatment center, the list of rules that you have to follow to be a treatment center in the state of Colorado is unbelievable. We had no idea what we were getting into. It didn't stop us from wanting to get our licensure because we really wanted to facilitate the program that we were running. We were blown away at how many rules there were. Some of the rules didn't make any sense to us at the time. They were rules like the kids can't have underarm deodorant in their rooms. At the time when we were a boys only home, that was not a good idea. We, we didn't want to have to check out underarm deodorant because these boys, they smelled. Have you ever smelled a teenage boy? But when they told us why they made the rule that some child had tried to kill themselves by eating sticks of deodorant that they had found in their room, the law starts to make sense. And the law is based around, the rules are based around trying to protect the common denominator of the kids that are in the system. My guest today is 
Dr. Skip Barber, and he is a licensed psychologist. He is a instructor of therapists. He is a lobbyist at a legislative level here in the state of Colorado. And he is an advocate for programs like mine to the rulemaking bodies and the laws that are being passed with regards to children and mental health. Because I want people to understand just how complicated this issue is when it comes to wanting to help kids. The moment you say, I want to help kids, you can get so bogged down in bureaucracy that you could walk away from it not having completed your mission, your vision, and kids still need help. So we got to get to the bottom of what's going on in the state of Colorado with the rules, the laws, and the state of mental health. My guest today is Dr. Skip Barber. This is Beyond Risk and Back. Dr. Barber, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a couple years now, and I'm very fond of you, and I'm really amazed at what you do. And when I watch you talk, I want to do it one day. Not now, but one day I want to do what you do. I want your job, sir. That's what I'm trying to say. But thank you for being on the show with me today. Aaron, it's a pleasure to be here. And please call me Skip doing this uh podcast. Will do, Skip. Thank you so much. Okay. My first question, we had talked a little bit about it off the air, and I want to start with it. I was under the impression that many, many years ago, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that the federal government had come in to audit the state of Colorado and the condition of our child health care and welfare, and that we had failed miserably, and that the state of Colorado went on this big hustle and created all these new rules to really improve what they were doing. And my experience was my experience in getting licensure and the difficulty and the stringent nature of the policies was a result of that failed audit. And you're telling me that's not the case. Can you explain that? Um, sure. The federal government comes into all states on a regular basis. And right now it's like every four years and they do what they call the CFSR review, child and family service review. And that review is set up so that every state, every time fails. It's really a quality assurance process where the federal government is constantly asking questions about the service delivery system and asking states how they're going to improve what it is that they're doing. Uh, every state, like I say, in the history since they started doing this, uh, you know, 15 years ago, has failed. And then the state is given kind of report where it identifies some of the weaknesses that were identified in the system. And when the federal viewers, they come in, they actually talk to the families. They take a random sample of the cases. They don't just look at the total data uh, for the state, although they look at, you know, the state reports, but they actually talk to families and to service providers and everyone in the system. The state then has to come up with a performance improvement plan. You often hear it talked about at Capitol as the PIP, but every four years we have this performance improvement plan where we begin to try to make improvements of identified weaknesses in our system. Okay. The normal process, and like I say, every state has failed, every reviewed, and there's never been a state that's passed. 
So the government has set us up to fail so we can all get better. I like the sound of it. I hope it's working. Skip, let's drop back for a second because I want the parents, the teachers, the clinicians who listen to this show to understand who you are and where you came from and how you got here. As I said, you're a lobbyist, you're an advocate, you're a psychologist, and you're an instructor of this stuff. What's your background? What brought you to working at the state level with children and programs? Many, many years ago, I got involved with a very socially active church that had a street ministry on the streets of Hollywood, California. And in the course of that, I had the opportunity to get some training in counseling and the psychologist that was working with the church said to me that I had an aptitude for this stuff and he recommended that I go to grad school to pursue a career as a psychologist. Um, I was very fortunate. I was accepted fully theological where I got a master divinity and a PhD in psychology and I found that I really liked working in a 24-hour setting. So as I completed my graduate education, I looked for psychiatric hospital opportunities. I had the fortune of being hired in the late 70s to work down at the State Institute, the Colorado State Hospital in Pueblo, on the kids' units and worked with kids and families down in Pueblo, eventually became the chief psychologist on the Children's Center, and for seven years worked with families and kids at our mental hospital. Of course, nowadays we have very few kids in the hospitals. In those days, at both of our state hospitals, we had over 100 kids a day at each hospital. In 1986, I was engaged to be married. My wife wanted to go to grad school. It wasn't really an opportunity in Pueblo. So I said I would relocate to support her. She ended up going to Denver University to get a master's in social work. And I was hired to be the executive director of the Denver Children's Home, which, if you don't know, it has a very long and rich history. It was founded in 1876 as the Denver Orphans Home. So it was over 100 years old when I became the director. But it was a 64-bed residential treatment center, and it was really the step-down for a lot of the kids that were in the state mental hospital when they were discharged. Had the wonderful opportunity to work there for 17 years. My focus was really trying to do family work. So during my tenure at the Denver Children's Home, one, we emphasized treating local families. 80% of the families were from the Denver metro area when I was the director. And we also began the expansion of trying to ask ourselves, how do we do what we're doing residentially and keep kids in their own homes? Had the good fortune to be able to create the first day treatment program in the city of Denver, where we provide the same intensity of services, but kept kids in their own homes. We actually picked them up in the morning. We brought them back in the afternoon. We worked with the families and supported them to try to make those kids successful, which led us to create a after-school day treatment program so that kids didn't have to be moved out of their school if that was an area of success. So we had a separate day treatment program in the afternoon, and then we eventually started doing intensive in-home work. So I had the wonderful opportunity while at the Denver Children's Home. The Denver Children's Home is kind of right by City Park and only five minutes from downtown. I was actually a member, like you are now, of CAFCA, which is the Colorado Association of Family and Children's Agencies, what I'm director of now. 
but I was a member then, and they did advocacy uh, and lobbying. And whenever there was an issue related to, uh, you know, the kids that we serve in our programs, the director of Kafka then used to call me up and I used to go down and testify on behalf of kids. So right from the early or mid 80s, I began um, advocating for kids in our system. And once I started doing that, then I got named to several of the statewide committees looking at kids issues. So during my whole tenure at Denver Children's Home, I had the opportunity to not just lead the Denver Children's Home, but begin to work on public policy. When I left Denver Children's Home in uh, 2003, I then began doing advocacy full-time. I actually worked for a consortium of residential treatment centers. We had a network that I had developed while at Denver Children's Home called Colorado Care Management. I worked for the, that group of facilities for a few years, and then eventually we merged that back together with Kafka, and I became the executive director of the Colorado Association of Family and Children's Agencies, and I've been doing this now for over 10 years. So you've had a lot of experience at the upper echelons, in the command rooms, as it were, in the in the admiral's quarters, and right down on the battlefield, one-on-one with the kids, one-on-three with the families. So you've seen this work at all angles, sounds like. So I, I think a question... Or if I can correct you, I've seen it not work at all angles, too. Because that's, part of the issue... Go ahead, Aaron. Well, I think that was my that was the question that I was starting to come on to. Is this working? Now that you've seen this work and see it not work, are we? is it working? Is Colorado doing well as a state with taking care of kids and families? Uh, and that's wow. really unfortunate. Yeah, that's a that's, know, and, that's pretty intense. So, so yeah, back, back that up. What's going on? Let's be honest with one another in the sense that Colorado has a real resource problem. We are a fairly affluent state, but we have crippled our legislative branch of government. And let me, from my perspective, kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of what's happened to mental health over the years. In many ways, it's followed my career. I mentioned the fact that I worked at State Hospital and we had 100-plus kids down in Pablo, 100-plus kids at Fort Logan here. And we had a rather robust mental health treatment system in the 80s, early 90s. And a decision was made in the early 90s to transition our Medicaid mental health treatment system from a fee-for-service system to a capitated behavioral health system. And so the funding went from kind of traditional insurance to kind of the Kaiser model, where a lump sum is put into a pot, people bid for that, and that bidder then became responsible for all the services. It's a good concept, but what happened is that the goal of the system was to move from the more high-end institutional kind of hospital-based treatment the community-based treatment, but they didn't put any new money. And so when they went to capitation, we literally, and I'm just going to go on the kids' side, we closed in the 90s with the advent of mental health capitation over 700 psychiatric hospital beds for kids 
in the state of Colorado. Is that because less people needed care or that's because the resources no. and the funding dried up? Oh, yeah. No, because the goal was to do more community service. The high-end treatment dried up. So 700 beds closed. We have today only about 200 psychiatric hospital beds for kids statewide. We used to have that just between the two state hospitals. In terms of where we rank in terms of national, you know, based on population, we have one of the fewest beds per kid ratios in the whole nation. And so the resources aren't there. Now, the notion of doing community-based services is a good notion. If we could do things in the community and we're successful at it, that would be very good. Like I said, when I was at Denver Children's Home, I was trying to develop community-based programs. And it wasn't just because they were downsizing care, but it was because it's a good idea. But the problem is, is the system has gotten to the place where there's not enough high-end resources. And so they put a lot of kids in a lower level of care that's inappropriate and it's driving families crazy. They keep saying, I need help. And rather than getting intensity help, they get these little band-aids that just don't work. And so families don't feel safe. They get confused about where to go. And they let kind of things build up to kids are, you know, having these episodes of violence, rage, you know, major depression, suicide, and only then do people then kind of respond to them. And that's a terrible way to run the system. I'm looking at a, a fact that was posted in 2013 that's saying that in the United States, there were 55,916 children and youth in congregate care in the United States, and it represented a 37% decline over the past decade. But what you're telling me, and well, first of all, are those numbers getting better or worse? Let me just go back to my narrative a minute, just so that you get an idea. So we went to the behavioral health caption, we closed psychiatric hospitals, those kids still needed treatment. And so what happened is that those kids ended up in residential care in the 90s. Right. And by 1997, the state of Colorado was in a state of crisis, and there was a commission that the state director of human services, Barbara O'Donnell, called together, and we came together, county directors, providers, and basically she said that the state's going to run out of money, and we're either going to not pay anyone for the last three months of this fiscal year, or we're going to come up with a solution. And so the solution was that, first of all, the state said, we're going to put a fixed amount of money now into child welfare, and the counties will get a block allocation. And if they spend more than they get allocated by the state, then it's going to be county-only money that they have to spend. The second thing that they did is they did a massive cut for provider rates, about 11.5%. They just flat cut everyone's rate and said, we're going to pay you less. And the good news at that time is that the federal government had done a major change. They had changed an old program. They operated aid to families with dependent children, AFDC. They changed it to TANF. 
temporary assistance for needy families. They infused more money into it, and they said you could spend up to 30% of the money if you don't spend it for you know, food stamps and economic assistance to poor families. You can use it for child welfare. The counties used it for the first couple of years to offset the loss of state money. And so we didn't really see a change in residential placements and even foster care until about three or four years later. So by 2001, 2002, the economy had begun to dip in Colorado and they needed the counties more of the money for economic assistance for families that were really struggling financially. And so they began the process of cutting the number of services they provided. Okay, so we're starting to get into the the really kind of think tank stuff going on here. And I'm even starting to get lost in some some of the numbers and where this money is coming from. And it seems to me that when the state says we don't have much money to give you, that the county is going to follow suit because the county's in the state and they're going to have the same problems at a county level that a state is going through. And that one of the results is cutting programs that provide the support for these kids who are wreaking havoc on their whole families. And families, as you said, were left confused and desperate and don't know where to turn. And the programs that are left funded are programs that you're saying are band-aid, they're not working. We know that kids who are really in, you know, that the anxiety issues, the depression issues, the addiction issues, mental health, whether it's neurological or whether it's environmental, the kids need these 30-day, I'm sorry, 90-day plus length programs to really really make the changes. There's no money in the state for that. I'm still, I still get letters from you, as we all do, who are part of Kafka saying, hey, this program that's been in existence for 70 years is closing down. This program that's been in existence for 102 years is closing down. So these programs are closing. The need is still there. When you say our legislation is crippled, are there men and women not advocates, not lobbyists, but men and women at the state level, legislators who are really fighting for this, who are really trying to make this, or are they just saying, we got to cut from here because we got to b- rebuild this bridge. We got to, if this money's not going to children, where's it going? That's my first question. And num- my second question is, what about the marijuana money? What about all these wonderful tax dollars getting diverted over to, to mental health for children or support services for children? We've got the state of Colorado's got money. We're a wealthy state. Where's it going? <laughs> well, in the late 90s, the state of Colorado passed a, in my mind, bizarre law. The voters did it. The voters thought that they were voting on saying that if there was going to be a tax increase in the state of Colorado, that the voters wanted to approve that. That They didn't want the legislature just to pass new taxes all the time. They wanted a say in it. It was a very short description, and it made sense, and people voted for it. What people didn't realize is that there was 23 pages of fine print behind the scenes that they had no clue that they were voting for. And that law we call in Colorado TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And while it makes a lot of sense, it did some rather bizarre things. So not only does our legislature not have the ability 
to raise taxes, they actually are limited in their ability to what they can spend. And I don't want to lose people, but our state can only increase their budget one year to the next up to 6%. 6%. Yes. And that is dependent on the fact that there has to be revenue there to raise government spending 6%. Now, what happens, though, in a year in which revenue declines is that we have a mandatory balanced budget. And so we have to cut state budget. Every time we do a cut, that baseline gets reset and we can only grow the next year 6% again. So what's happened several years when the economy has gone down, because the economy doesn't kind of grow in a linear fashion, it kind of has a wavy motion. We keep resetting our state budget at whatever low level it is in an individual year. And it's called the ratchet down phenomena. Our legislators do not have the ability to change that. And there has not been the ability to generate a major tax overhaul that the voters would support. And so it just has not happened. But we keep resetting the bar low and have to keep growth 6% from that over and over again. And it means that, you know, and 6% maybe sounds like a lot of money, but we have mandatory increases for school finance. We have the Medicaid programs that have grown over the years to provide healthcare. And so things that are more discretionary keep getting edged out of the budget. And so the budget hasn't kept pace in terms of child welfare, in terms of provider rates in terms of services for kids. And so our state has, they're good intended people, but we have a real complex system right now that doesn't work for a lot of kids and families that you and I have dealt with over the years. Okay. So now Um, we've got, now, so we've got this ratcheting down. We crank it down. We can only raise 6% from that new crank down line. So I get the ratcheting down concept. Now we legalize marijuana for medicinal and then follow that up with recreational. We've got all these tax dollars. How are these not like cigarette dollars or an alcohol tax or something like that, where we're going to put this money directly into the thing that a lot of us to think can be caused by uh, smoking too much marijuana or smoking high intensity marijuana. How, you know, it, I saw an article that said in May last year that, that money was going to start going to be diverted towards an opioid crisis. What about the kids? How about we use some of this? You know, we talk about funding schools. What about funding mental health so that kids can actually pass school? What's going on with this money? Well, when we passed the marijuana legalization. We also built in the taxes for it and designated where those taxes were going to go. So they're pretty prescriptive in terms of what we can do for them. Some of this money is going into substance abuse programs. Not a lot, but some of it is. Okay. So here we, I guess we kind of keep coming back to this question that you have probably been asking since you began working with policymakers and working at the state legislative level. That what about the kids? What about the kids? And we're not seeing a decline in need. We're seeing a decline in care. And I don't think people understand, you do, I do, how much it costs to run a program for children, how much the daily cost is. People would be astounded 
to understand how much I spend each day running a program. And county run programs are no different because we all have to follow the same rules. So what I think my question is, are we in a state of dwindling funds, prohibitive rules, you know, that are designed to protect children. Let's be clear, prohibitive rules, you know, you can't do sweat lodges unless you get really special spiritual exemption. And that makes sense because people could certainly abuse that. Kids could get injured doing that, but it's still prohibitive as far as an experience a child can have. And people would argue whether it's necessary or not. But we know some facilities who utilize anipis consistently, but the rules are prohibitive. And so the experience can become watered down. It can become prohibitive. Your child's experience in recovery at a county level, at a state level, can be watered down, prohibitive, and basic without a lot of creativity because of the rules. And then that program could close on you because we don't have enough money to fund it. So what are parents supposed to do? Where are these parents supposed to look? Or Is your advice for these parents to just keep using it until it runs out? Or is there another path that these parents have not explored? What do parents do? So that's a real complex question. And parents struggle all the time because it takes a lot of perseverance by a parent to kind of hold the system accountable and make them provide services. And the service system is set up to be so diversified that finding the right place to access service becomes really difficult. So we have, on the one hand, families that have Medicaid eligibility that theoretically are supposed to get services through these capitated mental health systems, the BHOs, we call them now, behavioral health organizations. They're soon to be called RAISE, the Regional Accountable Entity. That's the change that's coming July 1st. But in that system, there is an appeal process. So if the family is eligible for Medicaid, they need to get really active and do appeals and take it right up as high as they can when they're not getting the services they need. But for a lot of families, they don't qualify for Medicaid. So they left to go to other systems. The other systems that are available for families, one of them is child welfare. Child welfare is a funding source. Now we've already identified in 2003, we actually had on an average daily basis in residential treatment, almost 1500 kids. Today we have 540 kids. It's a decline of almost two thirds. Our whole foster care system's gone from 7,000 kids to 5,500 kids a day, that's a, almost a 25% decline. So our counties have been cutting down who the, they're serving. The other thing that families find extremely unfavorable to them or, or distasteful is that the counties often ask kids to become under custody of the Department of Human Services. They ask families to voluntarily stipulate to a dependency and neglect issue. Even though they have not abused or neglected their kids, they've been trying to provide the best services possible. That prevents a lot of families from getting services through child welfare. Child welfare is very reluctant to provide voluntary services. As a result of that, in the late 90s, then Representative Mo Keller and a group of advocates that included myself created a system where families with intensive mental health needs could get services without giving up custody of their kids. And it's the Child Mental Health 
Treatment Act. In those days, it was called 1118. Nowadays, it's called CMHTA, Child Mental Health Treatment Act. But families can petition for high-end services for their kids through the mental health agencies, the mental health centers. Now, that's not the behavioral health organizations, but they're, you know, Jefferson County Mental Health, JCMH, Mental Health Corp of Denver. But you can petition for services for your kid. Once again, it takes tremendous advocacy and families just have to really stand up for the fact that their kid needs services. But there are services through the Child Mental Health Treatment Act. I can also tell you that that is a allocation that the state makes every year and that currently it's overexpended. And so you have to kind of fight for services. And sometimes it takes a while to get services through the Child Mental Health Treatment Act. Okay, so Skip, let me, thing- let me ask this, because uh, this is one of those things where I will tell you that as a parent, and I'm sure parents listening would be like, this is so complicated. Like, do they make it this way on purpose? And I'm sure they don't purposefully make it this difficult so that you bail out of the system and don't use the money, but it's hard not to feel that way. So I hear you saying families got to persevere. When they get denied, they've got to continually appeal it. They've got to stay the course. They got to fight for their kids. You mentioned advocacy, and I understand a parent advocating for their kid. Is there a place that a parent can go, a nonprofit, something like that, that is going to help these parents get their children the care that they need so that these parents aren't just doing it on their own? Yeah, I would say the Federation of Families is the best place for families to go to find similar families that um, are in this process. And they have advocates that will actually help the families navigate the system. The Federation of Families. Got it. Federation of Families. And this and this is an organization mm-hmm. any family can apply, um, you know, if, if they're if they're struggling with their kid and they, they've been denied services, but they, but they need it, but they do not want to give up custody of their children to the county or the state? Well, you know, the Federation of Families is a place to go to connect with other families that are trying to work with the system and to get help navigating. It doesn't, Federation of Families doesn't provide the services themselves, but they will help you find the services. Right, right, right. Okay. Man, Skiff, what a mess. What is what is well, this? How come we can't just help kids? What is this? Well, let, let me give you the other one that always drives me crazy before we get to that. <laughs> There's that more? Question. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the advice that families are often given is call the police. You know, and, and while I understand that advice, once again, it puts families in tremendous binds because families don't want to get their child involved with our juvenile justice system. And for many of our kids, this has become kind of the default place to get services, is that we have almost as many kids, well, we have half the number of kids, but we have over 200 kids in residential treatment facilities through our youth correction system because they couldn't get services through another system. And the notion of, you know, next time your kids in real distress and throwing a fit, call the police and press charges and have your kid committed to youth corrections. We drive families crazy with that advice. I always say to families, 
I, I don't recommend it. If your kid, you know, if it's the only way for you to get services, I understand, but families don't want to pursue that. And I think that it's really inappropriate that people encourage families to access services through that mechanism. Okay, so that one certainly has been kind of a regular go-to for a lot of a lot of advice. When at at some point, families feel like that's that's all they got left. Skip, I don't know how you navigate this at the level you're. You hold so many abbreviations and acronyms and, you know, financials and dates and stuff like that in your head. Now I don't think I want your job. I, I think I'm just going to support you in doing this. How do parents help you when, when it comes time to fight for kids at the state level? If we've got some activist parents who've experienced exactly what you're talking about, exactly what this conversation is about, how do they support you? So, you know, I think that there are opportunities um, to get involved. Uh, the Federation of Families is a, a very active group of uh, parents that are involved with the state on an ongoing basis. Uh, the Child Mental Health Treatment Act Committee actually has seats for uh, family members uh, to help design the program so that it makes sense and works for families. Um, I think that there's lots of opportunities to get involved. But in part, you know, they have to solve their own crisis before they can move on to begin to address some of the policy issues. I think our legislature every year is trying to improve the system and figure out how to make it work better for kids. But like I say, there's limited amount of funding and uh, it kind of constantly is pulled in lots of directions and the uh, policy discussions around funding um, are probably beyond what a family member wants to get involved in. Uh, where I encourage them to get involved is in the discussions about how to make services work for families like them. And there's lots of opportunities for that. You know, I I want to I wanna end my part in this conversation by saying it seems like there's a limit in funding because we limit the funding. And I and I don't know if that's true. It's how I feel. Is that accurate? And I'm not just talking about legislators because, yeah. as you said, this is a voter-driven thing. We, we have limited funding because, as human beings, we are limiting the funding. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Man, oh, man. Is this going to change? I don't know. You're, you know, I, I, I think that at certain points, voters get to the point where they say, OK, we want to put more resources in. And I've been encouraged that um, some school districts have voted for uh, mill increases for education and stuff. But, you know, the overall system reform is going to take a massive uh, amount of uh, effort by us all. Uh, to create a system of government that really works for uh, the families and kids in our system. And, and it's going to take a while to get there. There's so many people at every level fighting the good fight for families and kids. Skip, I, I, I admire you. I am grateful that you're up there battling it out with the, with the, uh, the big wigs in, in our, in our, legislature and sitting with the state policymakers 
to uh, to really look out for programs like us. So thank you. I wish I understood more of what you were talking about at times. And I think the result that people experience when they're trying to find help with their kid is frustrating sometimes at best. It's frustrating at best, but I just wanted people to know that there are people like you out there really trying to get these people to to change some laws and to, to make some different rules. So Skip, thank you very much. And thanks for being on the show today. Aaron, thanks so much. And, you know, I, I certainly come at it from the perspective of that I was working, you know, in the trenches with the kids and families, and I certainly understand their pain. And, you know, it, it, I'm determined to continue the fight on their behalf uh, with the policymakers to try to make the system work as well as possible for the kids and families in it. Well, thank you, Skip. Families, parents, teachers, clinicians, anybody who works with uh, teens at risk, just know that you're joining an elite group of people who really are trying to do right by these kids, whether the issues are neurological or environmental, addiction, anything. We're, there's, there's a lot of people in, in this world who just have the heart for this work. And as always, I'm going to remind you, you take care of yourself first and you take care of your adult relationship second so that you can take care of your children third. This is how we do our best work with our kids. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Skip Barber, and we will talk again. This has been Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. And what a tea, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. A matchup. And what a tea, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions.